You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Dwight Chapin. You may have heard his name. He has one of the most interesting political careers from a staff perspective, and we love staffers here at the Veteran Strategies or at the uh, Leaders and Legends podcast because that's what we did. Uh, Dwight Chapin served as the Secretary and Deputy Assistant to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. He also worked for him in the 1962 campaign as a field man, and it was there at the campaign, I believe, that he met a fellow named H.R. Haldeman, and he went to go work for him at the J. Walter Thompson Public Relations Company. Chapin was part of Nixon's presidential campaign from 67 to 68, then served in the White House. Time magazine once described him as, quote, young, athletic, religious, handsome, clean-cut, bright, ambitious, and tough. I should also add Mr. Chapin is a proud alumnus of the University of Southern California and has already accused Notre Dame of cheating in the pre-interview part of this discussion. Mr. Chapin, thank you very much for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Terrific, Robert. It's great to be with you. You know, there's so many books about Nixon, about Watergate, about politics in the 60s and 70s. What made you decide to add your talents to the list? Well, I, w- I was renovating, uh, actually in charge of a group, renovating the Nixon Library out in Yorba Linda, California. And in doing that and pulling everything together, I started realizing that so many people looked at Nixon and there were two buckets. One bucket was Watergate. The other bucket was China. And it didn't begin to cover the whole breadth of Nixon's career and what he had accomplished and what kind of man he was. And so I thought, hey, you know, uh, I I probably have an obligation to history to at least put down as much as I can on the man I knew and uh, present this guy as as I knew him. So that's that's kind of what led to the book. 
first having uh, the seed of an idea. Dwight Chapin's book is called The President's Man, which I have to say is just a brilliant, brilliant title. Whose idea was it? That was the publisher's idea. Uh, Robert, I, I thought it was a little ego-centered uh, when they called and said, you know, we, we want to call the book uh, and put the title The President's Man on there. I thought, yeah, that's not right. Uh you know, I mean, Haldeman or Ehrlichman or Kissinger, any number of different people, George Schultz. I mean, there were a lot of men that, around the president. But then the publisher said, no, Dwight, we're, we're going to modify this and, and we're going to have the president's man. And then it's going to say the memoirs of Nixon's trusted aide. So that started to modify it. And then they also came up with a picture that they wanted to use which clearly established me in more of an aid-like role, showing him a, uh, a document. So I, eventually I was happy with the choice. And now uh, I got to say I'm delighted with the title because the book's successful and uh, everybody seems to be able to remember it. Well, it's clearly a play on all the president's men that was written by Woodward and Bernstein did the fact that, that maybe the title of your book could be associated with the title of that book. Give you pause. Uh, not really, not really. I mean, uh, I do think that it, it was a play off of that. There's no question that it was conceived as I said, by the publisher, but it didn't give me any pause. No. When do you think that you caught the political bug? As a kid, you grew up, you were a teenager or, and a young man in some very, very important historical times. And one of the questions I like to ask folks like you when they come on the podcast is, when did you kind of get the itch to, to be in politics or be interested in candidates? Yes, I was in high school. Uh, I had uh, been boys president and I was student body president. So I was kind of inclined toward, you know, being up front or out front or however you want to put it. But I remember that there was a um, mayor of Los Angeles, a man running for it by the name of Sam Yorty. And he was an independent. He was a Democrat, but the mayorship was an independent uh, uh, job. And uh, I distributed bumper stickers and went door to door in our neighborhood. And I probably was maybe 14, 15 years old. So that, that to me, that, that, that was my first kind of little entree into elective politics. Uh, so that I would, I would pick that benchmark. Were you someone who was Influenced by the administration of Dwight Eisenhower. I was born in 67. When people say, what made you a Republican? My first answer usually is, you know, I grew up in the Reagan years. And so it was easy to be a Republican. Is that something right. that you felt too? Yes. Yes, very definitely. And it was easy to be a, an Eisenhower Republican. And of course, Nixon was his vice president. So, you know, there's there's that tie. Plus, uh, the, con the congressional district in California that we lived in, that is the congressional district that Nixon represented when he first went to Congress. So there was that tie also. 
in is 46 when he won his first yes and then in 50 he wins the senate um, in 52 he runs with uh, eisenhower did did president nixon ever talk to you about any of those campaigns especially the uh the pink underwear campaign against Helen Douglas and for the Senate Helen, in 1950. Helen Gahan Douglas. I, he did not <laughs> talk to me about that. No. Uh, but, but I'm very familiar with the story and I'm very familiar with his other campaigns. Uh, his first one was against a man by the name of Jerry Voorhees and uh, Jerry Voorhees had been voted uh, the most popular congressman by the media in Washington, D.C., and Nixon goes out and he beats him. So <clears throat> right out of the box, he, be, he beats a Democrat that was one of the favorites of, uh, of the media. That You could pinpoint that as maybe the start of the, the battle between Nixon and the media. You know, Nixon, and we're going to get to so much to talk about, but there are some things that I want to make sure that you get a chance to weigh in on. I always felt that in in my reading of of Nixon that the Watergate thing for him was kind of like why me like everyone does all this kind of stuff and you do a great job in your book of talking about Dick Tuck who was the uh, Democrat uh, dirty trickster for years and years and years whose reputation was so uh, accepted that when Pat Buchanan, because I watched Pat Buchanan's testimony in front of the Watergate committee, he mentions it and Sam Irvin starts laughing like they all knew, like this is this is just part of the game. And I always thought that Nixon got a bad rap for being such a ruthless campaigner with 46 and 1950 being the two big examples. I guess you could throw in Alger Hiss as well. But do you think that 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 reputation assigned to Nixon is fair or unfair? Unfair. Unfair. And I think also, uh, Robert, you've got to build into that, that General Eisenhower was up on another level and you had his vice president, Nixon, and all of the political work that needed to be done and the attacking, you know, of the Democrats and so forth all fell to Nixon. So Nixon's carrying the, the political baggage all through the Eisenhower years. And you end up with him, therefore, getting the Herblock and the Conrad-type cartoons, uh, very brutal cartoons and so forth. So Nixon took a hell of a beating through that whole period. But isn't it fair to say that that nothing Nixon did, let's say, prior to Watergate, that nothing he did was out of the ordinary or that would, would be found as shocking? I mean, am I remembering correctly that the Kennedy family brought in Franklin Roosevelt Jr. to basically accuse Hubert Humphrey of being a draft dodger in the West Virginia primary in 1960? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that went on. Yes, it's not it's not a gentle business. Uh, politics is, as somebody said, not beanbag. Uh, so uh, President Nixon was, you know, I mean, he was in the middle of a lot of different political brawls. but. To my knowledge, nothing, nothing illegal, nothing uh, highly different than what was going on with uh, our opposition. When you were younger, did you watch live or did you watch or listen to the Checkers speech by I don't remember the che- Senator Nixon? Too little. I, I 
do not remember that speech. Uh, I've seen it a number of times, and we included it into the Nixon Library when we renovated the library. We have a, uh, visitors actually see the, the speech, and uh, we put it into a display that gives a lot of the context in which it happened. But I, I don't remember the speech from that night, no. President Nixon, or Richard Nixon, served two terms as Dwight Eisenhower's vice president, then ran for the presidency himself in 1960 against John F. Kennedy, famous or infamously lost by a razor-thin, highly disputed margin. Did President Nixon ever talk to you about that race? No. No, we we never discussed that uh, that race. In 1962, Nixon decides to run for governor of California, and uh, he loses, and he loses relatively badly, especially coming after the Cuban Missile Crisis that was going on at the same time. Um, No one could have predicted, I would say, that Richard Nixon would be elected president of the United States after losing in 1962 to Pat Brown. Is it fair to say that was your political uh, baptism, Dwight? Yes. In 1962, uh, I was hired to be a field man, and I was in charge of the San Fernando Valley of L.A. County, Ventura County, and Santa Barbara County. I was a college student, but my, and my responsibility was to go around in those counties and work with basically housewives at, at the time. I mean, women at, at that juncture really weren't into the job market like they are today. And we used housewives as volunteers to establish little community uh, campaign headquarters where they would have precinct sheets. This is the days of really the grassroots politics. And uh, it had been Bob Haldeman that hired me to become a field man. Uh, Bob Haldeman later becoming Nixon's chief of staff uh, later, but he he was the campaign manager in 1962. Uh, I I'm one of the few people that you could talk to who actually thought Nixon was going to win in 1962. I was so naive. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid, you know. I'm 21 years old, and I would when Nixon lost to Bat Brown that more uh, that in that campaign. I mean, I I drove all over LA the next day, uh, just kind of sobbing. And so my my world had fallen apart. I do want to make the point though, Robert, that the morning after the election, so it would have been Wednesday morning, when Nixon came downstairs into the ballroom of the Beverly Hilton Hotel, I was standing about eight feet from it. Uh, at one of the most remarkable things that I had ever seen, where he is talking to the media and he says, gentlemen, I want you to know that you're not going to have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. This is my last press conference. And with that, he marched out of the ballroom uh, and uh, ABC ran a, a show. Howard K. Smith was the anchor. And they even had... They even had Alger Hiss, uh, Nixon's arch enemy, on that show, and it was called The Political Obituary of Richard Nixon. 
that was the end. That was the end of his political career right there. Someone we would love to have on the Leaders and Legends podcast to talk about these various things is is your friend. I think he's your friend. I, that's what I got from the book, Patrick Buchanan. Pat's one of my dear friends. Pat's uh, one of my closest friends. He's a terrific writer. And I'm yeah. going to ask you about both his books, but about this kind of time period. But let me ask you about his book, The Greatest Comeback. Yes. About Nixon's rise from 1962 and that press conference where I'm sure he got a ton of personal delight and satisfaction, but it clearly hurt him and the media didn't miss an opportunity to step on him when they could. If I had told you in 1962, Nixon would be elected president in 1968, you would have said? I would have said, nope, no way. It's all over. (laughs) Uh, But I wouldn't have said that in 1963. And the difference is in 1962 in November, uh, he loses. But when we go ahead and start into the first part of 1973, I had been uh, invited by Bob Haldeman to join him at J. Walter Thompson Advertising. So I would go after class at USC I would go to the advertising agency and work in the afternoons part-time. So, and Bob starts educating me more about Nixon, who has now gone from California back to New York City, where he is now a a lawyer. Uh, He's the lead name on a a big law firm, Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander. Uh, And Bob starts flying east attending strategy meetings with Nixon, who in 1973 is starting to figure out how to have his comeback. And lo and behold, in in this period, Jack Kennedy gets assassinated, and Nixon is faced with an immediate decision as to whether or not to to challenge Barry Goldwater, who is the conservative uh, Republican candidate that is really ahead in all the polls and so forth, or whether or whether Nixon should wait and and let Goldwater go up against LBJ, uh, wait for that to happen, and then uh, go for go forward for the presidency in 1968. And Nixon makes the strategic decision, a very important one, to forego trying to go up against Goldwater and win the nomination from the Republicans. And and what Nixon does is he goes all over America and he campaigns his tail off on behalf of Barry Goldwater. And that really ingratiates him with the conservative movement in in the country. And he did the same thing in 1966, which ironically turned out to be a strong Republican year, but he campaigned across the country in 66 for Republican candidates. And really the, the 64 of 66 one, two punch sets him up for 68. When did you, when did you start working for then candidate or ex-vice president Nixon, who is going to be candidate Nixon in the mid to late sixties, all the way through his time in office? Okay. So, uh, and a very important part of my story is that I moved to the East Coast 
1965. And when I got to the East Coast, I called Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods. Uh, we're talking about New York City now. And, and I volunteered. And Rose said, okay, well, can you come down uh, in, the, in the evening? So uh, around uh, immediately after work or for two or three days a week, uh, I would hop on the subway and I would go from Midtown, New York, down to Wall Street, where Nixon's law firm was, and I would volunteer. The person that was teaching me how to answer mail, because that was what they had me doing, but the, the, my tutor was Pat Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon's wife. She, the later to be first lady, she is the one teaching me how to respond to all these people that are writing these letters that we're getting. And we, and we got literally hundreds of letters because Nixon was in the news quite a lot. He was the logical uh, front-runner candidate for 1968 after Goldwater had lost in 64. And Nixon had a policy in his office uh, throughout all the days that I ever knew him that every letter was to be answered. Every piece of correspondence that came into him was to receive a dignified response. And so I was uh, there doing, handling this correspondence. And the important piece, Robert, is that not only was Mrs. Nixon teaching me how to do this, but she was sizing me up. And you know, when you're, when you're working closely with a prominent family like that, uh, the key factor becomes trust. And I think that, that she got to know me. She got to know about my wife, Susie, and our two little girls. Uh, she would ask me all kinds of questions. And I can't help but believe that she would pass that on to her husband and uh, you know, the quality of the work that I was doing for them. And that that is was what seeded me in to to become his personal aide, in my opinion. Uh, Mrs. Nixon was hugely responsible for that happening. You're listening to the Leader, Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Dwight Chapin, author of The President's Man, the memoirs of Nixon's trusted aide. When did you know that Nixon was going to run in 68? And how did you feel about being a part of, of what was clearly going to be a significant historic campaign? Yes. Well, in 1966, as you have po clearly pointed out, and it is very important, he went all over this country on behalf of congressmen, uh, and set people in Senate races also. And I was an advance man in 66. I, I went out and set up uh, events that he would appear at. That, that election was in November, obviously, of 66. On the 1st of December, uh, Bob Haldeman visited from Southern California and he said to me, Dwight, I think you're going to have an opportunity to uh, work in a presidential campaign. You're going to get a call from Rosemary Woods, and uh, Mr. Nixon's going to want to talk to you. Well, sure enough, by the end of December, I forget the exact date, 
phone call came asking if I could come down to the law firm. I went down and I uh, had this, the meeting was probably like 10 minutes in length. And he, he was never, uh, Mr. Nixon was never really direct about it. He said, I am kind of, you know, thinking that uh, this is going to be an interesting period of time. And uh, we'll do a lot of, he, he assumed I was going to be, say yes. I, I, I don't know that he ever asked me, Dwight, would you like to come and be my personal aide? It just kind of this conversation evolved. And, and what I remember most about it was not so much the conversation with him, but the one with my father. Because that night I called my dad at, in, in Southern California. I said, Dad, I, I've got uh, this opportunity here that to, to work for uh, Mr. Nixon, and he may be the next president. And dad said, oh, I don't know about that. He said, you know, you, you know, politics, you never know. He says, you don't want to be burning all your bridges at the advertising agency. And of course, I could have cared less about the advertising <laughs> agency. <laughs> I, I, I was aboard. I, you know, I mean, I, I jumped on this horse and, uh, uh, I mean, the Nixons had been nice to me. I'm into the group. I because of Haldeman. I mean, I know every. I've met all of these people. I know everything that's going on. You know, in terms of uh, uh, the the startup of the campaign, and so I was ready to roll. How did Nixon Nixon treat you personally? You know, there's so much that's been written about his personality and psychological profiles. And this is why he did this. And his paranoia is why he did that and that sort of thing. But how was he to you? Just he was obviously and I think he would definitely be in the top. He would be on my Mount Rushmore of the most intelligent presidents, just in terms of pure intelligence. How did he treat you when it was just one on one? Was he, you know, solicitous? Was he? kind obviously he was demanding what was it like when it was just you and him it's a great question uh i want to use the word comfortable uh, i don't know what it was I, I i've talked about this before i think maybe my parents my grandparents uh bob haldeman for sure uh, i i was taught early on to take responsibility to, uh, I, I, I can remember I, I fed the cattle, went out, we lived on a farm in Kansas and I'm 13, 14 years old, getting up at 4.30 in the morning, taking care of, you know, 20 head of cattle. Uh, not, not a lot of cattle, but a lot of responsibility for a young man that age. And um, I, I, I had the gift of a work ethic to me. And so I was, I was reliable and I followed instructions. And when I was taught, told to do something, I did it. And I didn't, I did, I was taught not to complain. So uh, when it came to working with Mr. Nixon, uh, it was to me just like working for somebody else. I mean, the guy had been former vice president of the United States. Uh, by this time, have in mind that I've been going down to the law firm for 
a number of, well, actually for a couple of years, uh, working on the court. So, I, I mean, I, my my comfort zone was was really substantial, and and I I had uh, an intuitiveness about what it was that he would want or how he would want things to work. And the main thing was that within the bubble uh, of just the two of us moving around the country, and for months, it was just the two of us, uh, in in that little bubble of us going around the country, uh, there were some rules. You know, there are no surprises. Uh, Keep everything, you know, calm, Uh, almost a Quaker piece at the center type thing. You know, we we didn't need drama. Uh, We had enough drama just with news people and that kind of stuff. So we wanted to have an environment that was stable uh, and and to make sure that he was on schedule. He unlike, for example, Jack Kennedy. I mean, part of their psychology was to run 45 minutes to an hour late with the idea that that, you know, he was late because he was so popular and so forth. Nixon didn't buy into that. Nixon was came from an efficiency point of view. You know, if we're due there at 610, we'll be there at 610 um, and, and so forth. So but I I I, I got it and, and I could manage him in a way that was, uh, I would call non-obtrusive in any way. No, 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 you know, I was not an advisor to him. I was not his political consultant. Uh, I was a young man serving a, what really ended up being a very important mission of keeping him on track. And now today, in today's world, they call that a body man. Uh, my my job over time shifted, and I, I assume we'll be talking a little about that uh, in the interview. But but at the outset here, uh, to answer to, to, to I, I'm rambling, and I apologize. But the main thing was the intuitiveness that I was gifted with of how to manage him. Would you say that he was equal parts demanding and forgiving or more, more the latter or the former? Uh, uh, more the former. I mean, he, it wasn't that he was demanding. Just working for him created the demand. I mean, he, he didn't have to do that. I mean, I'm there to serve. I'm not even he's not demanding anything. He in fact, if anything, I would put him on the gentle side of managing people. He, he is not a good, he was, he was not a good confronter. If something went wrong or something, I would most likely hear about it from Rosemary Woods or, you know, from later from Bob Haldeman or from John Mitchell, the campaign manager. Uh, and Nixon was not direct in, in criticizing or so forth. And so, so, uh, with me, he was always respectful to a young man, and uh, there was no no hassle. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, 
the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is former aide to President Richard Nixon, Dwight Chapin, who's the author of a brand new book, came out this year. It's absolutely terrific. It's called The President's Man. Mr. Chapin, as you were going into the 68 election, were you more worried as a team about the primary against Rockefeller and Romney and others, or were you more worried about who you were going to face in November? We were more worried at the outset about the primaries because Nixon had lost to Kennedy. Nixon had lost to Pat Brown and Nixon had uh, a phrase was coined the new Nixon, but right below the new Nixon was Nixon as a loser. And if we lost any primary at all, that loser thing was going to pop up and take over anything to do with a new Nixon. So it was imperative that we win everything all the way through. Um, The other point I would make is that we couldn't do anything about the opposition. The opposition was going to be whoever it ended up being, but we could do something about our own primaries. When Robert Kennedy was assassinated, we actually had on the Leaders and Legends podcast a fellow named Mike Riley, who's who's now left us, but he was RFK's campaign manager in 68 here in Indiana when Kennedy won the Indiana primary. I asked him in our interview, did he think that Kennedy could have beaten or would have beaten Nixon? And of course, he resoundingly said, yes, of course, absolutely. We thought that he was going to be president. Did you all consider Robert Kennedy your your biggest uh, obstacle or your biggest, I mean, especially after Lyndon Johnson, I think it's March of 68, decides he tells the world he's not going to run. But was RFK your biggest worry? RFK was a worry. The Kennedys were always a worry. Uh, Nixon was um, obviously had his antenna up on anything involving the Kennedys. But you got to keep in mind, Robert Kennedy was much, much further left than Jack Kennedy. And uh, we, we, we had this, uh, the Vietnam War situation, uh, the demonstrators and so forth were not uh, cranked up to the extent that they became later on. Um, obviously, they were cranked up enough to, to have Lyndon Johnson not run for re-election. But, but that whole movement was not as far along. I, I, I don't believe that Robert Kennedy would have beat Nixon. Is, is the high point, and forgive me if I have my chronology wrong, but is the high point of the 68 campaign Richard Nixon on Laugh-In? On the offense? On Laugh-In. Same. Oh, Laugh-In. Uh, that was <laughs> Sock pretty, it to that me? Was, that was very, very early on uh, when it was the Saka to me and, and that was, uh, Paul Keyes, who was the executive producer of Laugh-In, who was one of the world's great guys. Uh, he was a very much a Nixon man and a, a great friend of president Nixon's and, or, or uh, pardon me, 
of the former vice president and the man that would become president. And, and Paul is one that arranged for that. It's brilliant. You can actually look it up on YouTube. Do you yeah. remember your reaction when you saw well, it or heard it. he was going to do it? Oh, I loved it. Well, Chris, I loved laughing. I mean, I, it was one of the great shows of all time. I thought. The 1968 campaign before we before we put you in the White House, the 1968 campaign is one of the closest in American history. One of the hardest fought. You had George Wallace as an independent. You had Hubert Humphrey as a sitting vice president who eventually breaks with his own administration uh, over Vietnam policy. You have the bugging of Nixon's plane, uh, the accusations that that. The Nixon or the Nixon campaign uh, coordinated with the South Vietnamese. Hey, don't don't give in. Fight, 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 because when Nixon becomes president, you'll get a better deal. What are your memories of of that campaign and some of the more nefarious charges against uh, then candidate Nixon? Yes. Well, the on on the last one you just mentioned about uh, the. uh, charges that Nixon somehow had encouraged the South Vietnamese not to uh, not to uh, pardon me, the North Vietnamese not not to uh, work with the Johnson administration in terms of solving the war. That's just that is just not true. And there has been a number of attempts by historians to prove this one way or the other, we were renovating the Nixon Library. And what we had, what we ended up doing, well, first of all, every document in the Nixon Library had to be approved by a panel of four historians that were picked by the National Archives, not by the Nixon Foundation, not, not by the media or anything, but by the independent uh, historians. They came to the conclusion that this could not be proven one way or the other. And at the library, what we do is we present the information from the LBJ point of view, and we present the information from the Nixon point of view, and we let the visitor try to make up their own mind. And this issue continues to bubble up out there, but it it can't be resolved because there does not exist that has been found yet any historical evidence that proves it one way or the other. You find it somewhat ironic in that historians and I think it's fair to say a significant portion of the news media both disdain Nixon, but are endlessly, perpetually fascinated by him. (laughs) Well, uh, this is an important point. Uh, The in putting together the proposal for my book, The President's Man, and getting all this stuff together, the question was, would a publisher be interested in it? And I had uh, four top publishing houses that were vying for my book. And uh, books on other presidents, uh, even a president as popular as Ronald Reagan, those books do not sell like Nixon books. There is something about the mystique of the man, uh, his life. Maybe it's the fact that he had to re had to resign office, whatever, whatever. Nixon is of interest. 
And that continues to this day. Do you think in part of it because he either affected or was involved or was a victim of big things, big events? Yes. I, I, that he, he, he ended up in the middle of middle of big events, but I think, uh, that we're going to learn over time. Uh, and it goes right back to part of your opening coming into this show. Nixon was one of the most brilliant presidents that we have ever had. People do not understand his, his mental capacity and his uh, sense of vision. I, I was listening to something uh, last week about wisdom. And wisdom, uh, a person that is wise or has wis- wisdom, is a knower. And Nixon was a knower. He, he, he could anticipate what was happening. Let me give you a, a key example. He, in 1972, he said in 50 years, this was in regards to China, in 50 years, we are going to be adversaries with China, and we have to be able to talk to one another. So that was said 50 years ago. And Nixon is saying in 50 years. I mean, it's kind of like, the, the, the guy had a sense of, of history and of, I, I use the word proportion, but he, he, he understood events and the relationship of events to uh, human nature and to uh, a strategic, a sense of, of a strategic uh, necessity for the nation. And, and, and we just don't have that kind of thinking right now. I One other real quick point. I had uh, the great fortune of spending two hours at breakfast last Thursday morning with Dr. Kissinger. He was out in California. He's got a brand new book out. Um, I had I had ridden with him, uh, just the two of us, from uh, the hotel over to the Nixon Library uh, the day before. We had had a chance to talk. He invited me to breakfast on uh, the next morning. For two hours, I sit there and I listened to him talking to me about our trip to China. I had gone to China with Kissinger in October of 1971. And then I went back with Al Haig in 1972 in January. And then I went with the president and Kissinger in February of 1972. So I've had, I had a, a lot of China exposure uh, with, Hen- with Henry Kissinger and so forth. And Henry is sitting there talking to me about Richard Nixon and how extraordinary uh, a man he was. And I, I think that this, this is going to come through in the years ahead uh, as, as we get past a lot of the Watergate stuff and start smoke, focusing more on the overall man himself and what he did for America. Was it a? I want to ask you about Secretary Kissinger here in a few minutes, but we're here with former Nixon aide or President Nixon aide Dwight Chapin. Was going to work at the White House after Nixon's victory in '68 a tough decision? Your wife, young kids. I mean, it's, it's long, long hours, a lot of responsibility. Is it thought well, maybe you should do something else and make a little money, but just couldn't turn it down. 
It was a non-decision. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was no decision. It, it was the only game in town. Are you kidding me? Uh, I mean, we were so excited we could hardly stand it. Uh, that I, I remember we the the transition government so you know the, was at the Pierre Hotel in New York City, and the main question in my mind was, you know, will I or will I not be able to be going to Washington? And that was answered very quickly that I would be going. And then in, in my own mind was, you know, what a, what am I what am I going to be doing? And I was uh, made his appointment secretary, and I was in charge of uh, his schedule and and all of everything around the schedule, including uh, the use of our advanced men and uh, the television office. So I had I had a portfolio of activities that I was given. Uh, I was 27 years old, uh, so I'm a very young man uh, with a. Uh, a huge responsibility and having absolutely no idea of how to you know how to serve in the government of the United States. So it was a real steep learning curve. I'll tell you, we we worked night and day. Let me throw some names out to you, and you can just give me some off the cuff sort of comments or reflections. Let's start with. Start with Kissinger. I remember I've read a lot of books about, I've read several books about him, meaning Kissinger, the relationship between the two of them. A really good one I remember is called 1973, but there were a lot of really strong foreign policy books about them. It was 1988, and there was this televised debate on the firing line, and it was William F. Buckley and Kissinger and Jack Kemp. And Gene Kirkpatrick against uh, Paul Warnke, uh, Gary Hart, and Pat Schroeder, and George McGovern, and and moderated by Michael Kinsley. And at one point, I think it was Paul Warnke, a longtime uh, defense negotiator and, and scholar, tells Henry Kissinger, you know, basically, quote, you know, Henry, when you were in charge of foreign policy and then and then Kissinger interrupts and goes, President President Nixon was in charge. I thought that was an interesting moment that even even 15, 14 years later, Kissinger was like, no, President Nixon was in charge. What was it like to see the two of them work together? Well, that's a first of all, that's an incredible story and a great story. And uh uh, I, I mentioned Henry earlier and the fact that last week he was saluting uh, President Nixon. And I, I I look at it this way, that Nixon was kind of like the architect and Kissinger the And so Nixon had this vision and he would create, not that, not that Henry didn't contribute to that, because he, he certainly did. But it was Kissinger that Nixon put onto the shuttle that went off the, you know, back and forth to Paris or to Beijing or wherever it is that they were trying to put uh, put some policy stuff together. The men, uh, uh, it was it was a subservient relationship. They were they were not co-equals by any stretch of the imagination, and. Uh, 
you've got to remember now, Henry, this is Henry when he is first starting out into, into, in government. This is not the Henry Kissinger you know now. The, the statesman, the Henry Kissinger you know now is a much uh, more anchored, much more self-assured, much more distinguished whatever person than, than that young Henry Kissinger back at the start of the Nixon administration. Henry was had, had insecurities, and uh, there were three or four different times that Henry uh, got upset and was going to resign. And I, I joke today that Henry Kissinger, we know today, would not be the world statesman he is if it weren't for Bob Haldeman, who convinced him every time he wanted to resign to stick around. <laughs> Had he not stuck around, he wouldn't have become the man that he is. And one of the things that comes through in your book about your relationship with Kissinger is that it it immediately became warm and, and friendly and close and that that for whatever reason, the two of you just kind of clicked. We did. We did. I well, I, it, it, I kind of started in the first call he got to come over and meet with the president-elect was my call to him saying, uh, Dr. Kissinger, president-elect uh, Nixon would like to meet with you. And, and it started there right at the outset of his association with Nixon. And, and at the time, uh, we went into the White House. My office was right, I mean, you literally went through uh, a door in the wall there that, that went right into the Oval Office. So Henry would go in and out that, that, that way, and he would almost always stop, and we would chat a few minutes and so forth. So his, his first recollections of me and so forth are my being right there where you're going, you know, uh, going in and out. And and it was off of that little, uh, just kind of the brief meetings and so forth that this relationship got established. And then the clock moves ahead, and we're, we're they're trying to figure out who's going to go with Kissinger to China. And John Ehrlichman, who was much senior to me, uh, he was a assistant to the president, and I was. At that juncture, a special assistant. So I was basically two levels down. John Ehrlichman wanted to lead the trip to China. And Kissinger didn't want Ehrlichman to do that because Ehrlichman had more seniority and might get in the way of, uh, again, this plays to Henry's insecurity, mm -hmm. might get in the way of uh, Henry in terms of his relationship with the president. The choice, the other choice besides Ehrlichman, Haldeman says, what about Dwight? And of course, I was, uh, again, uh, uh, further down the ladder in terms of uh, the positioning within the West Wing and, and was absolutely no threat to Henry whatsoever. And, and so, and, and plus, I, I respect him greatly. So, so we had a, the uniqueness of our combination worked to, for, to my advantage when it came to the China trip. And I, I was responsible for all of the logistics, um, uh, the arrangements. You know, Henry ran the substance, substance of the communique and the, you know, official meetings. And I was responsible for the rest of the party and the trip. 
your your mentor in a lot of ways when it comes through in in your book about your relationship with hr haldeman was that he could be extremely hot by that i mean friendly and supportive and pat you on the back but then be bitterly cutting and and critical why do you think he was those things and how did you handle it well uh we found out later in life uh, that i am highly dyslexic and my wiring is just different uh, bob was a very uh hands-on manager he was a member of mensa highly intelligent human being uh he expected a performance standard from me that would maybe i could have met if my wiring had been a little bit different uh but but his expectations and his criteria were that we worked for the president of the united states and everything i mean everything was to be done at the highest quality of work that could be done with so basically uh excellence is conformance to requirement with no mistakes and uh he wanted excellence and i i'm this young uh staffer and i'm doing i i'm i'm paddling as fast as i can and so i think that was a, a huge factor in it that 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 my uh ability to deliver was a little bit different because of just basically how i was made up uh i was not a managerial person i was a much more creative person and they bob moved me into game planning and to to working the president's schedule in a much more creative way there there the the schedule can be worked where it's just a routine type thing uh where you're scheduling meetings and so forth or you can start innovating and you can start uh saying how are we going to use the schedule to uh demonstrate certain things about the administration and our policies and so forth and i thanks to him got the upward momentum to the uh game planning side of things and that that changed the whole nature of our relationship john arlickman who was basically the the domestic policy advisor did you have much interaction with him lots of interaction he was a wonderful man um he he was not in the pressure cooker part of the white house operation that haldeman was i mean haldeman is spending hours a day with nixon and so when he comes out of there i mean he it's like there is no time for banter or you know fellowship whereas with erlichman erlichman's got a much looser more looser schedule uh time to sit and talk uh and personality wise john was just a different kind of human being than bob one of the very first people to join the nixon for presidency campaign in in 68 nixon for president before it perhaps was even named that was patrick buchanan what was it like working with him and 
was he truly that the House conservative? Yes, he was the House conservative. Uh, I introduced Pat at the uh, Nixon's 100th birthday. We had a celebration at the Mayflower Hotel, and I, I put together this introduc- introduction, and, and you know, uh, I, I had a series of get me Buchanan, where's Buchanan, bring Buchanan in here. I mean, Nixon loved Pat Buchanan. Pat's Pat's mind was so uh, freewheeling, and and Pat was represented the conservative side of the House so well, and Nixon just loved him. And I remember a a portion of, actually, I've I've watched that speech that that Buchanan gives at that Mayflower that anniversary. Yes, yeah, absolutely a, right. A terrific, terrific speech. And he was not well that night either. I mean, and he did a great job. That I think he had a meeting with some of the more conservative folks that were part of the Republican or slash conservative coalition. And they asked if he was Nixon's ambassador to them or if he was their ambassador to Nixon. And Buchanan replied, I am the president's man always, or I'm Nixon's man always gives you a sense of the sense of loyalty that, that Buchanan had all the way through. Yes. All the way through Pat, Pat is loyal to this, to this day. And, uh, I, I think I treat him, uh, quite kindly in my book and, uh, I treat him kindly in life because I, I absolutely love him and his wife, Shelley, who has been, she was with us at the yeah. uh, in the law firm. In the law firm, uh, in our office, it was Rosemary Woods, Nixon's secretary, Pat Buchanan, and myself. And sitting out front at the desk uh, in front of our office was Shelley Scarney, mm-hmm. who later became uh, Mrs. Pat Buchanan. Now, the last few years have seen some interesting interactions between the White House press corps in the White House press office. But I have to say that even though he did not go to prison or jail, I find Ron Ziegler the most sympathetic of all the Nixon staffers. Am I wrong in that? And how hard of a job did he have? He had a horrible job. Uh, Ron and I go back to uh, the Sigma Chi house at USC. And then he worked at J. Walter Thompson as Bob Haldeman's assistant when I first started there. And then we uh, he got he came onto the campaign in 1968. Uh, Nixon won. He, Ron became press secretary. Nixon didn't want to call him press secretary. He wanted to call him press assistant or something. Nixon didn't even want to have a press secretary because he didn't want he he was so upset with the press he, he was trying to figure out how to. Yeah, and, and Ron, who is responsible for servicing the media, uh, and, and has to has to be sharp day in day out. Know every issue. I mean, that man worked harder than I think harder than almost anybody in the White House. Now everybody worked hard, but but Ron was so challenged by this having to appear before the media every day and answer their questions. And to do that as a Nixon man, a Nixon spokesperson, made it even harder. What did you think of the moment where Nixon shoves him uh, towards the press corps 
that well, that was been. that was uh, unfortunate, unfortunate, and just one of the one of the horrible moments. I, I I I don't know. I've never spent much time thinking about it. Did do you know that if the president ever apologized to Ziegler? I don't know. I don't know. A couple of I want to ask a question about Vietnam, and then spend our last few minutes talking about Watergate, for which you were egregiously and ridiculously uh, convicted, uh, which comes through in your book. But Vietnam, before we get to the Watergate portion of your book, it just seems like that Vietnam is the rock, paper, and scissors hanging over the presidency, that Nixon's got to figure out a way to get the United States extricated from Vietnam. And it proves to think, does it prove, in your view, to be more difficult than President Nixon anticipated? Well, it surely was difficult, and it was uh, agony for him. I was talking this story I was telling you about talking with Dr. Kissinger. I, I remember uh, the buzzer going off shortly. This was like we had been in the White House maybe for a couple of months, and uh, there was a buzzer system, and he he pushed the button, and I went into the Oval Office. And he was standing in front of the desk, and he had in his hand uh, some uh, letters uh, on. There's a, a light green stationery that our presidents use. Uh, only presidents can use this stationery. And, and uh, he handed he handed them to me, and he said, "Give these to Rose." And as I looked at him, there were these tears coming down the side of his face. And these were letters to the to some uh, parents of young men that had been killed in Vietnam. And he had handwritten these letters. Um, Nixon was a Quaker. He, he didn't believe in war. Uh, he, he, he wanted to get those boys home. But, but he, I believe it was made harder for him to do what he wanted to do because of the demonstrators and what he was up against on the domestic side here in the United States. But he and Dr. Kissinger worked their tails off. And when I hear somebody insinuate that Nixon kept the war going so that it would help him in the 1972 re-election campaign, it really frosts me because I know how hard those men worked to try to get that war ended. And, they, and it was a they did yeoman work. And he came in there. There were 580,000 troops uh, in Vietnam. Johnson had taken it up to five. When Nixon left, and so there was, I believe the number was 12 or 16,000. He had taken it down to, and the war was basically over at that, at that point. So he did get accomplished what he needed to get accomplished. It took him longer than he had wanted. And it was a cloud that hung over the whole administration. What did you think of the movie Nixon starring Anthony Hopkins? Um, very honestly, I don't remember it that well. So I, uh, I remember I went to see it, but I don't remember what my impression was other than Hopkins did a hell of a job acting. <laughs> what are your memories of, and you detail this in your book, when President Nixon in the middle of the night decided to visit the Lincoln Memorial and talk to the protesters, the college kids. Is that in your mind, does that like make you go, okay, that's something Richard Nixon would do, or I can't believe Richard Nixon did that. 
No, that's something that Richard Nixon would do. Uh, the unexpected, uh, the uh, spur of the moment, he goes off and he does it. You know, they they refer, uh, there, there's an expression now, a Nixon, uh, a Nixon going to China moment. Yeah. I mean, the metaphor. That, yeah. Yeah. Of the metaphor. And, and, and that's kind of like would fall into the same category. So I would, I would put it there. Uh, he, he obviously couldn't sleep. All these demonstrators were coming to town. Uh, he's in the uh, sitting room. Manolo, his trusted valet comes in. He starts talking to Manolo and decides he's going to, go out there and go over to the Lincoln Memorial and take Manolo to the Hill to look at the Congress. I mean, it was such a strange moment in history. But that if you really read those pages in my book, you really you can you can see you can get a good feel for the inner side of Richard Nixon. Uh, he, he had uh, within him, he, he wanted to be able to communicate to these kids that were out there demonstrating, he wanted them not to be, not to be disappointed in America, but to understand what 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 he was having to do and why he was having to do it. And you know, uh, but he he didn't want to them to lose a sense of patriotism, uh, of of knowing that America was a good country, that we are good people, and that this war is not demonstrable of of an evilness on our part. So it's a very telling memorandum. When you first heard about the opening to China, what did you think? Wow, I thought, I mean, this is... (laughs) This was not to be believed. Uh, I was with him at the NBC studios in Burbank, California, when he announced it to the nation. Uh, I did not know until I actually heard him say it on television. Very few people knew. Ron Ziegler, who you mentioned, uh, knew. Bob Haldeman, Kissinger, Al Haig. But I mean, it was really a very, very tight group of people that knew it, that knew ahead of time. And of course, then, the media, I mean, it had just exploded. I mean, it was the, nobody could believe this. Nixon's going to China. And then the trip itself, of course, was uh, incredibly historic. And Nixon coined the phrase, you know, the week that changed the world. During the visit to China, Dwight Chapin got this following compliment from Chinese premier Zhou Enlai, who was so impressed with Dwight's skill at detail work and other things that he singled him out. Quote, saying of Dwight, you are an example of how we should utilize young men in government. How did that feel? <laughs> well, he said that he, uh, I, I don't think I was around when he said that, but it's in the, it's obviously he did say it and it's in uh, the literature of the times. Uh, Cho and Lai uh, and, and Mao, I mean, you're talking about very ruthless men here. I mean, they absolutely responsible for killing millions of people. So, you know, it's not like you put them on a pedestal of uh, historic greats, 
but they are historic greats when it comes to uh, the opening of China and the the movement to that. Uh, I I felt very comfortable with Cho and Lai. I had dinner with him on four different occasions. Kissinger was always seated on the right-hand side of Premier Cho, and I was on the left-hand side. But we would talk back and forth, mainly about uh, inconsequential things. He was incredibly interested in my education, uh, and he came over and over again. In fact, my book seems so redundant because he, he asks me so many times uh, about my age and, you know, my experience. And my, he just couldn't, he, he he was trying to grasp it because in China, you know, it was all old, old guys uh, for the most part. 1972 is both the, the high watermark and the beginning of the end for Richard Nixon and the Nixon administration. You go to China, you go to the Soviet Union to sign the arms control treaty. Uh, but then in June of 72, uh, several men break into the Democrat National Committee headquarters at the Watergate. When did you first hear of the Watergate break-in? And when did you first go, okay, this isn't a third-rate burglary, as Ron Ziegler said, this is something much significant. Yes. Um, well, I first heard about it uh, the, basically the night after uh, Bob Haldeman had called me. I was at a party on the Eastern Shore Island, and Bob called and said, uh, do you know anything about a planned uh, burglary uh, of the Democratic headquarters? I said, what? And he said, said, do you know of any plans to go into the Democratic? I said, no, sir. And he said, said, "Uh, you never heard Chuck Colson discuss this or anything? I said, no. So he he had a a concern, obviously, that maybe Colson had had something to do with this. this was a very important phone call to me because it told, in, in retrospect, it told me that Haldeman had no idea of what of any break-in plans or any knowledge of what the hell was going on. So that 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 that's a good news part of it. Um, the 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 conversion from a third-rate burglary to this is more serious started coming as we got further into the campaign year. So this break-in happened in June. And I I would say that it was maybe September, late August or September, when when I had my first interviews with the FBI about this. Uh, So they they sat down. And because I had hired Don Segretti, and because Segretti's name and phone number had been in one of the books that had been in an address book that had been in Howard Hunt's safe, and, and I explain all this in in my book, but it's but a terrific of, accounting too. If you if you're a fan, if that's the right term, or a scholar, or, or interested in Watergate, uh, Dwight Chapin's blow by blow account taking you through the months is really one of the best I've ever read. It's a terrific part of the book, which I know had to be painful at the same time. Yes, Robert, and, but but I, I appreciate your saying that because I spent a lot of time trying to 
to simplify this to the essence. And I've gotten a lot of compliments uh, on my book about the, the way that we it, we lay this out and explain it. But but it, to, the answer to your question is that I started realizing when I was meeting with the FBI and so forth that this definitely wasn't a third-rate burglar. Nixon famously won in 1972. I think he had... I think he won 521 to 17 over George McGovern, an absolute thrashing, uh, yes. which, again, you couldn't have predicted in 68 or 62 or 60. I remember watching George McGovern on the CNN show Crossfire. He was being interviewed by Pat Buchanan, and Buchanan asked him the question. This was probably 30, 25, 30 years ago, but I remember it. Um, basically, Watergate had nothing to do with your defeat. You ran your own race and lost your own race. And McGovern very quickly said, I agree with that. That's true. That's McGovern true. Had, McGovern even said that Watergate basically didn't matter when it came to the November elections. What are your thoughts? I, I, I agree. I, I, it, made, it had no impact whatsoever on the outcome of the election um, or, or, or the actual campaign itself. Uh, let me let me mention this that I don't know if you know this that uh, George McGovern I the last time I saw him was at President Nixon's funeral and he was sobbing he was sobbing I mean I uh, he was a warrior he was Nixon Nixon actually had a high regard for him not in a political sense. But in a personal sense, he was a very good man. And uh, obviously, a war hero, a war hero, a yeah, bombing mission. Obviously, in McGovern, World War II. McGovern uh, just the emotion of this, of the Nixon funeral and so forth, brought up in him this, uh, this uh, reaction. I, 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 I was surprised. When, H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman are let go in the early spring of 73. Did that change everything for you from a perception standpoint of Watergate? Like this has gone and grown way beyond anything that I thought it was going to be. I had left in uh, March. So I had gone over and started at United Airlines in Chicago. I was horrified that Bob was being let let go, and uh, but I, I understood the nature of that that the president had to cut his losses. I mean, it was a dark day. Uh, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman leaving, and that was kind of like, whoops! This thing is really the wheels have come are coming, coming completely off. I'm, I'm going to guess, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess you have seen the movie The Cane Mutiny with Humphrey Bogart. Yes. And there's a famous scene at the end after Captain Quig is convicted and Fred McMurray, uh, who was in the movie, uh, who turns out to be quite the coward, and he has a drink thrown in his face by Jose Ferrar, the attorney for 
the officers who, quote unquote, proclaimed the mutiny against Humphrey Bogart, Captain Quig. And Jose Farrar says, as he throws the drink in Fred McMurray's face, here's to the real author of the Kane mutiny. It's a very powerful scene. Is that what should happen to John Dean? Someone should throw a drink in his face and say, you're the real author of Watergate and the downfall of the Nixon presidency. Metaphorically, that is. Yes. Well, I I just wish that the media would look at all of the facts and realize that this man did an incredible disservice to America. John Dean knew the the day of the break-in or the the day following when he first met with John Ehrlichman and then later when he met with Bob Holden. John Dean knew the truth. And had he told his superiors exactly what had happened, there would have been no Watergate. Instead, he never tells Nixon the actual facts of Watergate for over nine months. And it is in March of 1973. The break-in was in June of 72. It is March of 1973 when John Dean finally starts confessing uh, the truth of what had happened. And then he's still trying to kind of disguise that. And, and as Nixon pushes and so forth, John Dean retains his criminal lawyer and they go to the prosecutors and they uh, John Dean starts turning on Nixon and, you know, the rest is history. But John Dean knew and he did not tell the truth to his superiors. Is it fair to say that he is not held in high regard by other Nixon alumni? Well, I, I, no, he's not. And uh, rightly so, in my opinion. Dwight Chapin eventually went to prison for nine months for his, I'm going to say it this way, for his non-role in Watergate and everything that happened. It's clear from your book and other things that I've read that you're you're sentence and your conviction is a horrid and terrible miscarriage of justice. But in your book, you seem to come to peace with it in some regard. Am I characterizing that correctly? And if so, how did you come to peace with it? Because I can only imagine the, the anger that one must feel if they are confined for nine months for simply doing nothing wrong. Well, Robert, this whole thing was a political uh, shenanigan. Uh, the whole Watergate story, really, if you get into it, uh, with all of the nuances of it, is a political story, not a criminal story. Uh, it serves the interest of some to make it a criminal story, but in my mind, it's not. And you know, you can go through life and carry uh, grudges or be resentful uh, 
somewhere along the way, I was I was taught that uh, attitude determines altitude mm-hmm. is a cute little saying, but it's true. So uh, by kind of letting it go, by not being resentful, not realizing that it was a political thing and the prosecutors did their jobs, they were young men and they they were making their careers off of the back of Richard Nixon. I don't agree, I don't like it, but I understand what they were doing. Uh, the Democrats uh, wanted to particularly a large segment of them were Kennedy Democrats. They wanted to uh, reinvigorate Ted Kennedy and get him out of that Chappaquiddick mess. Uh, and that played into to this drama. Um, the media itself was uh, took it and and ran with it. Both both Woodward and Bernstein became heroes and uh, investigative journalism. You know, it's kind of like they won the marathon or something. I mean, it made them. Um, I will say this. I the other day I ran into Carl Bernstein at the Authors Night in East Hampton. I was just going to ask you if you'd ever met Woodward or Bernstein. Please go yeah, ahead. I'm sorry. So I, I went. I, Carl, I, Carl, and I have known each other for a few years, and we've we've had uh, lunch and breakfast together. But I went up to him at uh, this authors' night at the East Hampton Library, and he he gave me a big hug, and he said, "Dwight," uh, he says, "I really enjoyed your book." He says, "I disagree." with some of the some of the content but i liked your book and i'm glad you did it i said i bet you did disagree with some of the content i mean you know carl bernstein's position is that nixon is an evil guy uh woodward uh, has the same position that nixon is this evil evil man and the man i knew the president that i describe in my book is not an evil guy did he make some mistakes you better believe it but 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 he wasn't an evil man. He he was a, 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 a historic public servant uh, who honored America by his by his achievements and his work that he did on behalf of our nation. And sure, he made some mistakes. One of the biggest mistakes in life that he met, made was letting John Dean be his general counsel. You mentioned Nixon's President Nixon's funeral. I believe he died in early 1994. Yes. When was the last time you had a conversation with President Nixon? Ooh, I haven't been asked that. Uh, I would say about a year before he died, maybe a year and a half. And and we, over the years, there were any number of different reunions that he would always he would come yeah. to. Uh, I, I remember going over to Saddle River, New Jersey, where his office was uh, in later years, and and having some conversations with him. Um, you know, it was uh, I, I received letters from him periodically. Uh, one, one of the I'll say this that one of the uh, letters that pops into my head immediately is that I was I was in prison. And it was February of 1976, and all of a sudden, this handwritten letter came from Richard Nixon, and he he was getting ready to go to China. 
So we had gone together in February of 72. This is four years later, and he's getting ready to go. And he said, basically, the letter was, you know, Dwight, I'm getting ready to go to China. And I want, you know, I want you to know I'm thinking of you and our historic trip of four years ago. So I know that he was affected by what happened to me. Uh, he did he did say to me at one point, I took my wife, uh, Susie, and our two daughters, and we went to San Clemente. Uh, we met with the president, and uh, he, he obviously he had prepared saying this, but he, he, had, he looked at both of my little girls. Uh, well, they were, I would say at this time, like 12 and 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, said, he, said, he said something along the lines of, you know, I want your, you to know your dad did great things for the nation or something. So he, in his way, he he did his best to, you know, acknowledge my contribution. And I've always been deeply appreciative of that. But, but most importantly, I've been appreciative of the fact that he gave this young man, a me, uh, the privilege of serving. And even for all that went wrong, Robert, uh, uh, I, I gained so much more than I ever lost. It was, it was a, it was a world-class experience and I'm forever grateful. Do you agree with president Gerald Ford's decision to pardon president? Absolutely. Absolutely. What was to be gained that Nixon's punishment was in resigning. Uh, you know, people ask me, well, don't you, how do you feel about the fact that you, had to go to prison and Nixon didn't. I said, how do you know Nixon didn't live in his own prison? I mean, come on. Yeah. There's that famous video where he's at, I think in Oxford at the student union and he's trying to give a speech and to some students and there are a bunch of people outside jeering him and, and insulting him. And he actually acknowledges their presence. He's like, this is what I deserve. You know, this is what I get. So I thought that was kind of a, an acknowledgement of his own personal imprisonment. Yes, and and there at the neighbor in your Belinda, we have uh, a quote from when he was interviewed by David Frost, and he apologizes, uh, and he says that the thing that bother troubles him most is, you know, the idea that there would be cynicism among the young people in the country about about serving in government and so forth. And the thing that I love, Robert, is that there's this quote, and then if you turn 180 degrees and look back on a wall, there's a Newsweek magazine cover, and at the top it says, he's back. He's back, that's right. And when I'm taking people through the library, I I always show them that quote that Nixon says, and then I – I turn around and have him turn around and look and say, had he not admitted to his faults and what he had done, that headline would have never been written. He's back. The last question I want to ask you, and I ask very quickly, you've been very, very kind with your time. What was your reaction when you found out about the existence of the taping system in the White House and other places? Yes, that was during the Watergate hearings, and uh, Alex Butterfield uh, testified that there was the the taping mechanism. I had no idea, and that it even existed. It was never 
part of my duties or responsibilities to uh, have anything to do with it. Uh, and I was horrified that the tapes were there. I felt like Pat Buchanan, I felt that they should be burnt. Uh, I think John Conley too. I mean, let's build a bonfire and build it real quick. Um, but that was not that was not to be. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. We'll ask them very quickly for Dwight Chapin. Question number one: What was your first job? My first job was. Uh, working in a car dealership, uh, cleaning up the shop room floor with uh, sawdust and a broom and uh, making sure it was clean for all of the mechanics that came in. Question number two, what was your first concert? My first concert, one of the best concerts ever, Neil Diamond in the Greek theater in uh, Hollywood, California. Question number three, if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? And if you want to give us a specific Nixon book that you like best, please do so. Uh, there was an author, Woke, and he wrote The Winds of War. Yeah, Herman Woke. Great books of all time. And uh, as for a Nixon book, I really recommend his memoirs, probably one of the greatest presidential memoirs ever written and highly saluted by publishers from all the publishing houses. And this is an interesting question to you because you have been witness to so many great events, but if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Wow. What a question. Um, maybe Armistice Day. Uh, World War II, uh, you know, the end of a world war. What an occasion. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to discuss anything you want, whom would you choose? Well, I just spent uh, two hours with Dr. Kissinger, so I'll take him off that list. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, think I I might be inclined to want to sit and talk with Rand Paul. I think he he is such a thoughtful man and uh, uh, he knows things I'd like to know. Our libertarian podcast engineer Chris Spangle is jumping up and down <laughs> at that answer for sure. You yeah. have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been White House aide to President Richard Nixon, an author of a simply magnificent book called The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aide. Mr. Dwight Chapin, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy. Thanks, Robert. It, it sure has been for me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. 
If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.